This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity May. It's a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your investing journey from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Uh... Another Monday episode. Yes. Um, happy reporting season. Thank you. Yeah. It's, that, <laughs> it's always going. It's that wonderful time of the year that seems to, yeah, never stop and always be around the corner. Well, yeah, in the States particularly, mm. every three months. I was thinking about this in preparation for the episode today, how, uh, how much time would be spent by these companies doing reporting and, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about investor letters today and having to think about and write a meaningful letter every three months. Mm, yes, yeah, that would be tough for you. It takes you about three months to think. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I mean, have you read the book, uh, The Outsiders? Mm-hmm. Um, and how the it's a, for those who haven't read it, it's a story about like eight CEOs have, who have just had incredible long-term track records. And one thing that a lot of them did, they just didn't care about investor relations. And they were like, buy my stock, don't buy my stock. That's not my focus. Um I'm just going to make a more valuable company. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, you're right. For a lot of these bigger companies, the the dog and pony show just keeps on rolling. Yeah. So today we are going to be looking at two investor letters. Uh, every quarter, investors, you know, large and small, write to their clients. Uh, particularly over in the states is where we're going to be focusing today. And for us, from there, a pretty valuable source of information. Uh, you often put them out in the thought starters on a Monday, and we're going to go through two today and pick out some of the stocks that they've specifically been talking about. Yeah, yeah. Before we do, um, one note of housekeeping. Um, We have a live show this week, this Thursday. Uh, Tickets for the in-person event have sold out, but we have tickets available for the online stream. Head to our any of our socials, really. There's a Facebook event uh, that will take you to the Eventbrite page. Free tickets. Uh, it's, it's free to sign up for the online stream, and there are prizes to be won. Stake are giving away $150 worth of stock in some of the biggest beverage companies in the world. Uh, they're giving away some merch. We're giving away some merch. We're giving away some books. Um, so, make sure you're on the live stream. Make sure you're participating. And uh, What's it about? 
Oh, it's about the beverage industry. <laughs> <laughs> what can we expect? Uh, just it's just us chatting, really. Gee, that is not inspiring. <laughs> nah, we've got we've got some of the um, the biggest experts in Australia, some from the industry, uh, some investors in the industry, uh, and we're going to be breaking down uh, the beverage industry in Australia and globally and talk about how you can invest in it. So don't miss it. Don't miss it. See you there. Okay, well, uh, let's crack into it. Uh, anything you want to kick off with, Ryan? Yeah, so before we uh, talk about the two particular letters, um, just, a, I guess, a bit of context. So, the investor letters come out in the same cadence as US reporting season. So, every quarter, these letters come out. In terms of where you can find them, if you want to play along at home, there's a subreddit, um, security analysis, reddit.com slash r slash security analysis. They aggregate the majority of the letters. So if you're looking for a place where you can find these, you can read these, the two that we're going to talk about today, but just more generally, all of the letters that come out, um, you can head there and they aggregate them all. You can access them for free. One note about reporting season before we uh, get into it. It feels like it's a real tale of two... Tale of two stories. That doesn't make sense. Um, but I don't know if you've been watching the results, but so many uh, big American companies are beating analyst expectations. Like that's a great news story that they're doing incredibly well. But a lot of them are seeing their share prices fall, even though they're beating analyst expectations. Just shows how high market expectations are mm. around these stocks. Mm. Not surprising that you see weird price movements around reporting time uh, versus expectations, but unusual that even though they're beating expectations, mm. we're still seeing price fall. Yeah, well, we speak about it a lot on the show that uh, you can never base an investment around an analyst expectation. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I guess that's the context in which we're talking about these letters, that the US, so they're both from the US, but the US economy is is rebounding well. Australia's economy is rebounding well. Um, but as a result of that, uh, stock market expectations are incredibly high and it's run incredibly hard since COVID. Yeah. And so these are the two contexts where these, uh, these letters have come from. So letter number one, and we are going to be diving into some specific stocks. So uh, there's, a, there's an absolute doozy in this one, uh, is David Einhorn, uh, his Q1 investor letter. Yeah. Um, so, who is David Einhorn? David Einhorn, uh, perhaps most famous for uh, being taunted online by Elon Musk. Yes, the short uh, shorts. Yeah, and Elon actually sent him a pair of short shorts. Those red ones that he had on sale a while yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, the there is context there. Elon's not just sending him clothing. Oh. No, he well he was, but uh, they were short shorts targeting short sellers yeah. of uh, Tesla stock, uh, maybe three years ago or thereabouts. Yeah. Um, Ironhorn was probably the most outspoken Tesla short, claiming fraud, especially around the Solar City acquisition, just claiming so much stuff. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if he was right about a lot of this stuff, but the market has definitely. Um, caused him to lose a lot of money. On yeah, that. there's no doubt this guy's pretty cynical. I think um, all around. You read you read this latest letter and he's having a winch again. But anyway, he's founder of Greenlight Capital, has $1.6 billion asset under management, started back in uh, 1996 and uh, had a decade of pretty incredible performance, averaging a return of 26% a year. Not bad. Not bad. You would definitely take that. Uh, 
More interesting, though, is that he had 12 billion mm. assets under management. So, you know, quite a fall from grace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's actually been a pretty public fall from grace as well. It would be pretty, sh- pretty tough to be him. Uh, he was riding high and then he has seen, what, over a decade now of underperformance against the market and people like institutions and stuff have been pulling their money. So, he had 12 billion assets under management. He now has 1.6 billion assets under management. Tough. Tough. He'd just see his fees going down yeah, and down Yeah, I mean, look, I don't have a lot of sympathy for him. He is a billionaire. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah he, he never needs to make another dollar in his life. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that would be tough. And it shows just how difficult... Uh, sustaining and investing over a long period of time is. Yeah. It's very rare that you see Warren Buffett get 20% plus return for 40 plus years. Like mm. that that's the exception, not the rule. All right, Ren. So, let's pick up from uh, commentary around the macro environment from his letter and then we can dig into some of the, the stocks that uh, he's spoken about. So, since 2008, uh, growth has massively uh, outperformed value. Yes. However, in the past quarter, we've seen a reverse of that with uh, value outperforming growth. That's it. Largely driven by expectations of inflation. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we all heard in the quarter around uh, bond yields rising, uh, inflation uh, expectations being back. We're not particularly seeing it in uh, CPI, like the, the... Consumer Price Index, measure of inflation. But he talks about um, a number of, I guess, supply bottlenecks, the amount of money being pumped into the economy. There's there's a lot of leading indicators of inflation. So, um, it's probably going to happen. Yeah, Yeah. you you would think so. And uh, there was no doubt that uh, the equity mates community felt uh, the reversal of growth V value when some of their tech positions were Mm, hit mm. uh, in the last three months. Um, and uh, that's obviously coming through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought um, when the Suez ship got stuck, oh, I, yeah. I was thinking if that had got stuck there for not, what, four days or but like four weeks, then what would have happened to like inflation with a literal supply bottleneck? Forget semiconductors <laughs> bottleneck. That was, yeah. That was uh, the black swan event that yeah, may have yeah. uh, triggered, <laughs> triggered uh, inflation. But, but yeah, I think um, a lot of the letters are focusing on this growth v value discussion um, and partly because it's the industry talking to the industry and this is something that the industry loves to talk about. And, and also we should say, so Einhorn I think was flat for the quarter. Again, yeah. not not what you want to see no. as one of his investors, but... Um, flat for the quarter and the market was up 6.2%. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So, not Another great. tough quarter. And, and I think <laughs> uh, some of these letters, you can see a little bit of self-justification in... Definitely. Um, under per, under perform, per, perform. Perform. I get in my own head about that now. <laughs> um, you know, and they're saying value's coming back. It's it's almost here. We're about to really hit our, hit our stride. Um, and so, I think there's a little bit of that from David Einhorn. In saying that though... He does list six of his best stocks for the quarter. Yep. Tell me if you've heard any of these names. Uh, Bright House Financial. No. Danima Scientific. No. Concentrics. Nope. Residio Technologies. No. Change Healthcare. No. Air Cap Holdings. No. Yeah. So, uh, and this is why I love investor letters and this is why I think they're such an underrated source of information is... 
there's six stocks that I hadn't heard of when I read it and that you haven't heard of. But it gives you it gives you six stocks to go and research. All those stocks were up between eighteen percent and sixty percent for the quarter, so they were. Uh, and he's still and he's still flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ouch. He had a. I mean, they don't they don't list everything, but um, there were he had one short position that he lost forty percent on, and I think his short book in general uh, didn't do too well. I'm pretty sure I've seen Bright House advertised on like uh, Ko or something. Yeah, they're in a life insurance company. Anyway, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so. Yeah, for me, it's like they. This is you have people doing the work for you, and you can see the companies that they've screened for, and then put them on your watch list, and then do the like the actual stock research. Yeah, it just it helps with the filtering process. But caveat as well, if you're looking at uh, Danima Scientific here, that's up sixty one percent. That is obviously in. Uh, retrospect in the fact that he has already bought the stock, done the work probably months and Great months call ago. Up. Great call up. Months and months ago. And, uh, you know, he's maybe in a position that he's going to sell it in a couple of months. So, do your own research yeah, when you yeah. see these sorts of things. Yeah. And I mean, people have got in trouble for the past for doing exactly that and then selling into the buying. Like, I'm pretty sure that's what, how Rene Rivkin got done back in the day. He would pump a stock that he had already bought and then he would sell it uh, as other, as, as people board. who were like reading his newsletter bought it. Now, don't don't quote me on that, but um, yeah. Dodgy. So, the biggest theme that I got from his letter, Ren, was actually around his uh, frustration with regulation in the market. And, you know, the GameStop saga, he had a big whinge about how can, you know, having a big whinge about uh, Elon Musk mm. and how regulators only give him a slap on the wrist for pushing up the share for price pumping, of Tesla on Twitter, yeah, yeah, yeah. pumping GameStop on Twitter, yeah. having a big whinge about um, a number of things that uh, he sees as big issues that are with the market in terms of um, fraudulent behavior and pumping and dumping mm. stocks. You know it's getting to pretty dire straits when free market capitalist billionaire investors, some of the people that hate regulation more than anyone else, are arguing that we I need agree. more regulation. Yeah. I, that, that's what I was thinking <laughs> when I was reading it. I'm just like, he's trying to throw uh, as many eyes away from his performance as possible. Let's put it on. <laughs> no, I, I, well, I think I've chewed the ear about this offline. Like, I so wholeheartedly agree with him. Uh, Some of the stories coming out of the US about how underfunded their regulators are is just, it's disgusting. Like, I included an article in Thought Starters probably back end of last year, sometime last year, where the Department of Justice has so little money for enforcement left that sometimes they have to put out a memo Mm. saying the Department of Justice is targeting white collar crime or you know insider trading but they just have to hope that that memo stops people doing anything because they don't have the money to actually target it like how can how can you get into this situation and expect markets to function efficiently and bad behavior not to start springing up and i think that's one thing that we can be really proud of in australia but we really have to hold on to is a properly funded regulator that has teeth true but let's get back to the stocks. <laughs> There's one that we want to call out that was in his letter that is a classic example of, uh, you know, what he's talking about. Well, it's not a classic example, but it raises a lot of eyebrows. And that is Hometown International, 
the $100 million deli. Yeah, yeah. This, this is his example of where the hell is the regulator? Where the hell is the cop on the bait? But it is a crazy story. I mean, do you want to give the overview? The overview is that there is uh, a hometown international is the holding company that owns one single deli in rural New Jersey. Yeah, publicly listed. <laughs> publicly listed yeah. on the stock market. Or on over the counter, but yeah, publicly listed. Yeah, yeah. One, uh, one deli in rural New Jersey. Now, we jumped on Ticker, uh, which is uh, one of our favorite platforms to be using for, for this sort of information. By the way, if you would like to use it, it is in beta and you can get exclusive access by heading to tikr.com slash equitymates. They have... Uh, had revenue ran over the last five or six years of 76,000, 50,000, 32,000, 22,000, and $14,000. And yes, that is 14,000, not 14 million. Yes, yes. Uh, so incredibly small revenue. Its profit is, uh, it hasn't generated any profit. It's uh, had loss of 190,000, 104,000, 108,000. 149,000, then out of nowhere last year, loss of 631,000. What would you expect its um, market cap to be? Uh, well, honestly, I wouldn't expect one rural deli to be listed. <laughs> but a company averaging, well, its revenue it has gone backwards every year from 76K five years ago to 14K. Obviously, COVID interrupted, but still, oh, You'd maybe pay like five times revenue, <laughs> if that. <laughs> five times revenue, so you'd be looking at what? Uh, you'd you about seventy five thousand or thereabouts. Oh, honestly, a company that is going backwards and losing that much money is worthless. You just wouldn't buy. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ren, you'd be uh, surprised to know that it has a market cap of a hundred uh, hundred million dollars mm. listed on the stock exchange. So that those numbers were from Ticker. Uh, I I jumped on simply Wall Street because you know how when we uh, we did the Veolia and Suez episode, they had the valuation mm-hmm. check. Mm-hmm. I was like, I wonder what simply Wall Street spits up for this valuation. It's just, it's too, it's just too. It can't do it. It can't do it. Like <laughs> it was just like massive red crosses on everything in there. Just, um, yeah, just, just a sea of red, and it was like it is just significantly, like out of the range. So, yeah, it's 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 pretty funny that I had. It's got six employees. Yeah, this this deli. So I guess what Einhorn's calling out here is how is this even possible? Well, how is it possible? Yeah, yeah. Well, pump and dump. Uh, what, what were we, we were talking offline about um, potential for money laundering. Well, now we should say that this is all wildly Consp- speculative, yes, alleged, yes. and no, we have no information about what it actually is. No, but, we have um, no idea why it's. While, while we're caveating it at like that, yeah, it's like, is could it be money laundering or something? But you would think if someone was money laundering, their revenue would be incredibly high because it's like they're bringing in all this cash business, recognizing it as revenue and mm. then cleaning it through the business. So, the fact that it did 14 grand in revenue, like, yeah. that does, again, doesn't make a lot of sense. 600,000 in loss. But anyway, that's uh, it's a pretty interesting letter. If you would like to find it, uh, as Alex said, head to uh, Reddit and uh, the security analysis page and there is a, a thread there that'll have, have it in there. Otherwise, you can... Um, I'm sure you can just Google it. You can you can just Google it. Yeah. And um, I mean, some of them are private. Some of these letters are only meant to go to their investors, but then people just publish them online. Others are public and you can just get them from these funds websites. 
but yeah, I, I just I just use Reddit. Before we move on to the next one, we'll just take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. All right, Ren, we are back with uh, the second letter, and this time it is from Ensemble Fund. Mm. Not a billion. Not billion a billion. Not a fund I'd heard of, to be honest, but... Um, I really liked their letter. I, I thought there was some really interesting stuff in here. O- mm. Honestly, uh, probably better than Ironhorn's letter. I agree. Um, yeah. But I guess you know when you're the smaller fund, you're fighting harder. Yeah. You got to put that. You got to put that work in. So this this fund, Ensemble Fund, has fifty three million assets, un- fifty three million dollars assets under management um, since starting in November twenty fifteen. They've returned seventeen and a half percent annually. Uh, which is beats the S and P five hundred in a pretty good time for the S and P five hundred. So full credit to them. Is that after fees? Yeah, it should be. If if a fund is publishing their returns before fees, uh, that for me is a massive. <laughs> Wouldn't red surprise flag. me. Wouldn't surprise. Yeah, me. I know, but it's like <laughs> returns for who then? Yeah, well, for for them. All right, well let's uh, let's keep going. So for this one, we'll uh, have a chat about what they've been talking about from a reopening point of view. And then we'll have a bit of a, a case study on one of their stocks a little later. Yeah, a few, actually a few good case studies in here. How's this for an opening line though? If someone fell into a deep sleep on the 19th of February 2020 and woke up on the 31st of March 2021, they'd see the S&P 500 was up 19.72% since they last checked their portfolio. Great. How crazy is that? Yeah. It's it's not just that it recovered from the pandemic. It's up 20%. It's that it had a good year. <laughs> yeah, amazing year considering yeah. where it came from. 20% a year is far better than average. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, from the bottom, if you even well, yeah, more then, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's crazy. All right, so they um, they start by discussing that the world is, is reopening. And uh, I didn't know this, but Goldman Sachs actually have a reopen basket. Yeah, yeah, this is cool. Yeah, which is 35 US listed stocks um, that they expect, they being Goldman, expect uh, to benefit most from reopening. Uh, that basket was up 22%. Mm. So it's um, like an index that tracks sentiment around reopening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they, yeah, and that led me down a, a path. This is... Um, not to do with the letter, but I had a bit of a research there. But this M- is the beauty of letters, mate. It, it <laughs> sets you off on a path. The MSCI have a, an index that tracks uh, reopening, expansion, then the two others that come after that, boom and bust or contraction. whatever. Contraction and then recession, perhaps. Yeah. And it's showing that, yeah, we're well and truly into reopening and just about to move into this expansion stage. And you can see how uh, investors use that as a way to... Uh, reweight portfolios, right? And you, and that makes sense. You know, a lot of investors are now saying, "Oh, the reopening stocks. It's time to, you know, cyclical this, cyclic, cyclical mm, that." Mm. Um, that's not for us, though. <laughs> why? Well, I mean, now that you've said it, why is it not for us? 
too much risk for me of overtrading. And, you know, my whole thing is just to, to ride all these things out and just keep putting money into the market. Mm. So I don't have enough time to be sitting down and thinking about what are my reopening stocks? What are my expansion stocks? What are my recession stocks? Mm. Um, do you? No, but the reason that I, I, I'm... Well, yeah, one is the overtrading thing and that, that a lot of this chat around, you know, rotate to cyclicals, rotate to defensive, rotate to growth now, whatever it is, is it, it's coming from brokers a lot of the time and it's coming from people that have an incentive to get you trading. But more generally, quality shines through cycles and like the best companies in the world over the long term are like cycle agnostic. You know, they they do well for decades. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was interesting. Up 22%. So, the reopen is well and truly on. Yeah. And uh, on the flip side, Goldman's uh, stay at home basket, which is a similar index tracking staying at home stocks, I guess the Pelotons and the Zooms yeah. of the world, yeah. uh, was down 2.4%. So, you can see that market expectations are really primed around vaccinations happening, the world opening up quickly, well, the US opening up quickly, and those companies to benefit and for the stay-at-home stocks to to not do as well. So, you know, if that plays out, that plays out. If it doesn't, then uh, some of these companies will be re-rated. But what I liked about this letter was there was, I think, three case... There was more than three case studies, but three, that, three that we want to touch on here. Mm. Um, three companies that we and more two that in particular that we admire one that we used to compete against in our in our old lives yes. <laughs> um, uh, and is a is an incredibly good company like is knows what it is knows what it's trying to execute and executes it so do you want to talk us through uh, Costco being the retail whisperer that you are <laughs> the retail whisperer so uh, the ensemble guys speak about Costco and um I guess the perils of short-termism and overestimating what's going to happen in the short term and, and applying that to your investments. So, Costco was down 17% between uh, the 31st of December 2020 and the 8th of March 2021. And that was driven largely by uh, sell-side analysts uh, who saw Costco heading into some uh, headwinds and and facing a difficult year of uh, comp sales, which in retail is really where you're comparing um, your sales this year to the same period last year that you want to see growth in that area obviously. yeah but I don't even think I don't even think it was that they were heading into headwinds. I think it was just because of the comps. Well, that's what I mean, uh, as in they, the analysts saw Costco heading into comp sale headwinds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay, but, but okay. But not, not, not operational headwinds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, and it all comes down to expectations in markets for, and for analysts. So, they presumed that Costco wouldn't be able to, able to you know, compare to last year's sale. The thing to consider here with that is that the underlying value of Costco didn't change. In fact, it only got better. During the pandemic, uh, their membership base increased by over 7%, which uh, actually equates to just shy of 4 million new members. Mm. And not only that, was uh, that their membership renewal rates were um, you know upwards of 90%. So, not only were they attracting new customers, their retention rate was incredible. Uh, and so there was really no reason to consider or there was really no reason to think that Costco uh, was going to have any issue 
with comparing yeah and you're speaking in the past tense but this is something that's happening now we are yeah so the the market sold costco because they wouldn't be able to compare to last year's growth numbers and and may even go backwards compared to last year's covid numbers but i'm just having a look at ticker their revenue was up nine percent which for a big box retailer that's very uh it's huge very unusual their ebitda was up 23 percent. so like they just had a cracking year last year and they may not be able to match that but they're nothing's changed about the company nothing's no. less valuable but the market sold them off 17 percent. yeah and for us that's just a great example of where the market how the market looks at things and how you as a retail investor with a long-term perspective look at things can be different and how that can give you an advantage yeah all right so they spoke about charles schwab do you want to give us a spiel of what happened there yeah well if if that if the costco story is a a story about short-term thinking in markets um i guess the charles schwab story is a story about the benefits of long-term thinking so charles schwab are one of those big uh u.s multi um not multinational but like multifaceted financial institutions i guess you know they have a a wealth management division, they have um, a bunch of different financial services, um, and then they also have a trading platform. And they have been incredibly disrupted by Robinhood, um, but Schwab made the decision to basically just cut fees uh, in brokerage, um, spread that loss out across their business, um, and really try and compete with Robinhood. And the market has punished them for it over the years. But quietly working away in the background, despite a lot of market commentary about how Robinhood's beating them, all this stuff, they've used the fact that they cut their fees to just massively grow their assets under management. They now have $6.9 trillion, well, not all under management, but like assets in their business. And now as bond yields have started to increase, as there's talk of interest rates going up, the market, like all of a sudden it clicked. Um, and Schwab was up tw- over 23% in the quarter. And um, this this fund ensemble held them for a while and could, I guess, could sort of see that story playing out, and it, and it did. But it's just a story of how, again, financial media and the markets have, have one perspective, but then, you know, attitudes changed. And, you know, the, the Schwab story is a story now where, you know, it's... Uh, it's playing out. Yeah. So, to close out, Ren, another retail stock. I'm kind of annoyed about this because I did want to pitch this for the portfolio, but- You can. Nah, we, there's going to be enough in here that we can just kind of add it on. But anyway, it's our Home Depot. Yeah. Depot. Depot. However you want to pronounce it. Look, pronunciation is definitely <laughs> not something that people come to this show for. <laughs> True. I'm pretty sure I just screwed up uh, Charles Schwab, however you pronounce it, a number of times. Um, so, I wouldn't worry too much. Charles about- Schwab. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this is a, a great story. Uh, for those that are unaware, Home Depot is, uh, Depot is the uh, largest home improvement <laughs> retailer in the United States. Think Bunnings but over in the US. And 
ensemble take us through why they think it is in a, an incredibly good position to have an, a really good next sort of 10 years. They're currently uh, facing some pretty good tailwinds, which um, are supporting housing investment and, and the DIY do-it-yourself uh Renovator, um, <laughs> not me. <laughs> Definitely not you. Um, so those three, the three that they mention, um, you know, there are a lot of millennials now who are getting into the housing market, but also starting to get a, a bit of money and some uh, inheritance and that transfer of wealth from from their parents. Millennials are entering prime family formation age. Yeah. I think is the way. And uh, good uh, salary levels. Well, yeah, yeah. It's like buy a house, settle down, have kids. Like, (laughs) and you're right in that sweet spot. Actually, (laughs) Uh, obviously, very low interest rate environment, and over in America, we're seeing huge fiscal stimulus from the government as well, pumping 1.9 trillion in, uh, with potentially a lot more to come. So, a lot of tailwinds that are supporting uh, Home Depot when it comes to to housing and uh, DIY. But the company itself ran pretty amazing. It has returned 17% per year for the last 15 years. Mm, it's incredible. Wow. Yeah. We love a company that is able to uh, give great return on investment, invested capital and compound over a long period of time. We speak about that and this company is certainly one of them. They have had a return on invested capital for, of 45%, which uh, again, pretty phenomenal. If you just invested in Home uh, Home Depot and Bunnings, well, West Farmers, you would have done incredibly well for yourself. You would have, yeah. yeah. So, they go through a little bit about the business uh, and, and where they're generating these sorts of returns. There are two sides to the company. There's that DIY side, which is uh, the majority of their customers. But interestingly, there's another side, I guess, uh, market that they're servicing. And you think about what happens here at Bunnings, it's, it's very similar. And it's that small contractor market, tradies who- don't have the buying power to go straight to suppliers. However, they go to Home Depot to get you know all the equipment they need for the small jobs that they're doing. These customers only make up four percent of their market, uh, their customer base, but uh, generate forty-five percent of revenue. So, mm. uh, yeah, it's a pretty interesting split there. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's pretty crazy. The, the flip side of that, if I if I was a competitor for Home Depot, I'd be like, you guys have all the retail mums and dads DIY I'm just going to target that 4% of your customer base that makes up half your revenue and if I can peel off even a percentage of them that's going to have an outsized impact on you yeah it's funny you say that these guys on Sommer went out and spoke to a bunch of these uh, small contractors and verbatim from them was that they have one of the big competitors for Home Depot is Lowe's and they you know uh, these contractors have said they have they would drive past a Lowe's to get to a Home Depot. Yeah, but so. they they didn't say they wouldn't drive past an Alex Discount Furniture Mart. I mean, uh, <laughs> furniture. Yeah. They definitely drive discount, past that. Uh, <laughs> discount Builders Mart. <laughs> no, I mean for me, it's more like do uh, like do Lowe's and uh, Home Depots Home Depots suppliers. Uh, just cut out the retail step and just try and su- supply to contractors and stuff directly. I'm not saying it's a it's a thing that can yeah. happen, but I'm saying that it's obviously the most valuable part of their business. Yeah. Um, 
they also talk about the fact that uh, Home Depot have a very strong online capability, which we know is incredibly important. You'd think that would bring in the threat of Amazon, but due to the nature of DIY products and, and building products, uh, there's a lot that is ordered online and picked up in store, which is something that Amazon aren't able to really do. So Ensemble don't see Amazon as a threat. But look, pretty interesting business mm. and one that they see as um, benefiting from some huge tailwinds that over the next 10 years they think is – well, they, I think they finished the last line saying it's a promising decade ahead. Yeah, now he, that's, a, that's the interesting thing because Home, home Depot – we keep screwing up the pronunciation of this name. <laughs> Home Depot uh, started as a, it was like a micro cap uh, that not a lot of people were covering. And you said what? Average 17% a year over the last 15 years. So I had a look at Simply Wall Street, which has it 35% overvalued. And it's got an aggregation of a whole bunch of analyst estimates. It's a very heavily covered stock. 29 analysts have uh, put projections on the line for the next couple of years. 6.1% is the forecast annual earnings growth uh, for the next three years. So, obviously, as it sort of matures and gets to that scale, you would you, you just can't expect that growth rate to continue. But I think it becomes a story of you know managing costs and finding strategic opportunities for growth. So, yeah, and these guys talk about that in that. Um you know, they're getting a lot of growth from within. They're not building a whole bunch of new stores. They're mm. investing in existing stores, investing in technology, investing in their supply chain. And for a company that's giving a return on invested capital of 45%, I mean, you'd take that. You would definitely take that. Yeah. And I, I think that's the same in the story of Bunnings. You know, Bunnings continues to find ways to just become a more valuable company without having to open up uh, heaps more stores or, mm. I mean, it did try to go to the UK. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and failed miserably. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us to uh, the end of our investor letter conversation. But stick around because we are just about to have uh, a new segment called Crypto Corner. Uh, we know there's a lot going on in the space at the moment. We're not going to talk price as usual. We're not going to talk speculation. We want to be unpacking a bit more about what's actually going on in the blockchain space, and we're going to be bringing in some experts to help us do that. It's just a five-minute segment, mm. so we're um, not. We're not. We did the week. We're not going to do a full episode on it. We're not that into it, but we are curious. <laughs> yes, and, we're crypto curious, and we do. We we are fascinated to hear about it. So rather than us talking about it, we've got Tracy. Um, who's going to talk to us about the Coinbase IPO and, and what that means? Yes. So, this is uh, Crypto Corner brought to you by Bamboo, uh, a micro-investing app that allows you to invest in precious metals, gold and silver, as well as digital assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. But um, let's give uh, Tracy a call to, as Ren said, hear about the Coinbase IPO. So, we're now joined uh, by Tracy from Bamboo. Tracy, thanks for joining us. No problem. Happy to be here. Now, Tracy, we've seen a big story come out of the US around uh, Coinbase. Um, so, they they recently uh, went public. Uh, can you explain to us, I guess, uh, you know, what happened and maybe the significance of their IPO? Yeah, look, and this has been described as a watershed moment for the crypto industry. You know, crypto has arrived mainstream. So, yeah, Coinbase have gained notoriety in the last few weeks as a, well, they're the biggest crypto platform and exchange in, in the US. So, they have gone public on the NASDAQ and that has been some pretty big, big news. 
So they are a crypto exchange, but they are centralised. And I think the the point here to make is that in crypto, we're very focused on decentralisation. So we look towards uh, what you'd call a DEX. So a Coinbase is a centralised exchange, and a lot of us crypto nerds look to use a DEX, which is a decentralised exchange. So what we'll uh, cover in the next five minutes is really what is a DEX, D-E-X, or a decentralized exchange that a lot of uh, us non-crypto nerds are hearing about, <laughs> how, it di- how it differs from traditional exchanges such as Coinbase, and then what are perhaps some popular DEX exchanges. So what is a DEX, uh, Tracy? As, as I mentioned, and as you pointed out there, DEX, D-E-X, is a decentralized exchange. So... Uh, this kind of decentralized exchange removes that third party and allows users to send cryptocurrencies directly to each other. So this market's built directly onto the blockchain and that way traders can independently manage their funds, uh, including the storage and the operation. So it's important to note here that it's managed by not a centralized exchange. So there's no longer need for that middleman, I guess, as you'd say. And most of these decentralized exchanges are built on Ethereum. So going back to a centralized exchange, um, it's worth noting that these exchanges are managed by a company or a private person kind of focused on generating profit for the company. So, you know, in that in that essence, I guess you're receiving a lot of fees and these can vary wildly from platform to platform. So they have got complete control. A centralised exchange has complete control of this operation. So they also keep your coins there. So a DEX is, you know, completely independent from that. And if I'll just jump into a couple of the pros for these DEX, is security over your assets. Because it's decentralised, the exchanges don't hold your assets. You're kind of moving those yourself. There's also no need for personal identification for the accounts here. So you don't need to worry about someone kind of stealing your information and there's no KYC involved. Another point is centralised exchanges can, you know, charge higher fees. On the DEX, you've kind of got lower fees there. So there's no centralised hub. So I'm just trying to think of the analogy to stocks where, you know, brokers take your buy or sell order to, to the market and then they you know the market matches it with a buy or sell order if it's just Bryce and I trading crypto on a ethereum based decentralized exchange like how are buy and sell orders like how, how does the market actually function yeah it's quite similar and I think we kind of uh, depending on how far down the rabbit hole some of the listeners have been but they would of, I'm sure, Uniswap, um, SushiSwap, Kyber, those bigger ones, Pancake, which kind of sounds silly as I'm saying them out loud. <laughs> yeah. But it's, uh, I mean, Uniswap's massive. Uniswap is the biggest and kind of the first one that forged that path along. So just to explain what I would do then, so you jump onto one of these ex- exchanges, you would then connect your wallet or your, I have MetaMask, for example. So you connect your wallet. And whatever you've got on there, it's very easy interface. You pick the coin that you want to swap with the other coin and, you know, you move those around that way. So it's really easy. And I think the user experience on on all of these is very different to your traditional um, exchanges. It's kind of, um, for lack of a better word, just dumbed down a little bit uh, and they're a lot easier to use. If the benefits are there compared to a traditional exchange, particularly for those who are Uh, I guess, nerding out a bit on crypto, why are these not as big as the centralized exchanges that we're we're seeing? 
Well, the centralised exchanges, I guess, you can trade. I mean, you can do you can trade on those, and they are well traditional in the fact that like, bigger, more liquidity, I guess. Yeah, liquidity is a big drawback for the decks, and then I think liquidity would probably be the biggest one there. So. You mentioned there that uh, central centralized exchanges have a profit motive, and they obviously do. The Coinbase founder is now a billionaire, so full, <laughs> full credit. Um, He's done very well for himself. But you know, there are a number of dexes, but surely they like that they're, they're not set up as not for profits or charities. Like these these companies must have a profit motive as well. So, um, or, unless I'm wrong, then please tell me. But um, I guess how, how do they make money? Yeah, absolutely. And look, I think something I heard the other day, um, Uniswap, which I mentioned, I mean, their annual business hit $6.5 billion and they've got 12 staff. Wow. So, wow. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty amazing. And I think that's why if you looked at you know this world of DEXs 12, 18 months ago, there's maybe three and there's literally hundreds now. You know, there's there's so many. So, it's, it's lucrative business. Otherwise, they wouldn't be popping up like they are. And I think a lot of them too, they put onus back on the community. I think that's why they are loved. A lot of it goes back into market. A lot of it goes back into keeping fees lower and transaction fees lower. So it really is, it plays into that whole ethos of why cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is around. Mm. Now, Tracy, we really appreciate your time. Uh, it's definitely something that I hadn't heard of before. I'm not sure if you had, Bryce. Um, Dexes. Um, final question for you. You know, right now we're talking about DEXs in the crypto space. Uh, should we expect to see a conversation about DEXs in uh, like other assets, like uh, in the share market? Not in the near term. I, I wouldn't think so. I mean, look, this has all come along because of the huge interest in this DeFi sector and how it's growing so quickly. But I wouldn't see that happening in the near term. Yeah, fair. Well, Tracy, we do appreciate your time. The first uh, crypto corner on Equity Mates. Um, if you would uh, be so willing as to come back on in a couple of weeks, we would uh, very much appreciate that to give us another update on what is going on in the in the crypto space because there's certainly a lot to keep up with and uh, Ren and I are by no means an expert in or don't even keep up with it. Yeah, <laughs> so- yeah. That's why we've got you, Tracy. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I'm know. looking forward to it. I mean, look, there's so many things to cover. Who knows what I'll do in five minutes. <laughs> Something interesting, that's for sure. But uh, until then, if you are interested in getting started on your own crypto journey, uh, head to getbamboo.io or download the Bamboo app. Yep. Uh, it's a micro-investing app for crypto and precious metals. Nice. Well, thank you, Tracy. Have a great Thanks, day guys. and uh, we'll catch up in a couple of weeks. Well, Ren, that brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, as always, it is fun to chat stocks and a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of crypto. That's just like life. 99% stocks, 1% crypto. That's it. <laughs> so, uh, we'll pick it up uh, next week as always. Um, but until then... Um, I'll probably see you in a couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> We're sitting together. Yeah. <laughs> that keep it in. <laughs> keep it in. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. 
do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.